everyone and welcome back to another episode of Topical Reflections on Music. I have the immense pleasure of welcoming uh, my very old friend, uh, Michal. Uh, Michal Raymond Masood. Is this uh, the name you go by now? Yes. Yes. I'm Michal Masood. So uh, Michal is a doctor of composition. He is a music teacher at Harbor Science and Arts Charter School founder and conductor of the Amalgama Ensemble, really a, a homo universalis, uh, if I may say so. Thank you very much for joining us today, dear Michal. Thank you for having me. Well, you have studied in Lebanon, in Canada, and in the US. As a teacher, you are in a unique position to evaluate the pedagogical approach to teaching composition. How does it differ from one country to another? What have you noticed? So I, um, I have studied in, in Lebanon when I was a teenager, but the Lebanese system of education is actually very, it's, it's kind of a divided between two schools of thought. One is the Western, you know, traditional conservatory approach that's, that you find in Europe. Mm -hmm. And as such, the European, um, like the Lebanese system is just an amalgam of different European approaches. You have the Western European uh, approach people who studied in France, for example, a lot. But you also have a lot of teachers from Eastern Europe, um, especially from Romania, mm -hmm. and they are very. Um, they have a very, very big presence in the conservatory. Um, as far as and then the other half is the Eastern approach, which is kind of more like the Arabic traditional music. And so in the conservatory, you have um, the conservatory split. You have two orchestras. You have the okay. Western traditional, you know, symphony orchestra. And then you have the Eastern Orchestra that um, has slightly different instruments. So you, for example, you have violins, but they're tuned differently. And um, you also have certain instruments that you don't find in the Western one, like the oud um, and other instruments. Um, as far as like my experience there, I was, I was very focused on the Western growing up. The Eastern, I absorbed, I absorbed it really like passively. You know what I mean? Like I listened to a lot of music. I, I had I played uh, the old growing up, but I I was very really into jazz at first. So I can only speak for that side of things, you know. And I think as far as my experience, it wasn't too different from what I learned later on when I was, uh, for example, growing up. I spent some time in France, and I studied there in the conservatory, and I I never felt like there was that that big of a difference in okay. the in the pedagogical approach. Um, comparing that to the U.S. and to some extent to Canada, I, I will I'll say that's more different. It's like a kind of a different pedagogical approach, both in music and not in music. So I don't know when you were asking me if I studied in Lebanon, Canada, and U.S. If you were only if you were only referring to musical education, or if you just meant like schooling in general. Mm, well, musical education in particular. Yeah, musical education in particular, like. I think there's more of an emphasis in in Europe or and in Lebanon, therefore, um, on I would say like technical theoretical knowledge. Mm -hmm. People care a lot about um, you know trying to. I wouldn't. I, yeah. I think. I think. People in the U.S., for example, instrumentally are extremely 
good at playing their instruments. Okay. But they don't necessarily always spend a lot of time uh, learning about theory growing up. Um, and I mean, like, you know, harmony, ear training, um, you know, those kinds of this kinds of knowledge. And growing up, like when I was studying at the French Conservatory, for example, I spent a lot of time, you know, you master solfege and these kinds of things as a child. Yes. And, and then when you when you when you're older, you spend time learning harmony and style and certain things like that, which I find when I was you know, both learning and also teaching in the US. I was uh, teaching it as a grad student at college. You realize that a lot of the students who are 18, 19 are doing a lot of those things like ear training and theory for the first time. Um, and whereas, but they've been playing since they were very young. So they don't necessarily spend time doing ear training. So that, that was pretty different. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't I necessarily- noticed. Oh, yeah. sorry. I wouldn't say one is necessarily better than the other. Mm -hmm. I feel like one is better than the other, but I, I, I think it's just normal that I'm biased. You know, I just, I like the way I was brought up, but I, I have no idea what it's like to to be on the other side. You know. Well, I noticed myself, I am from Bulgaria and I studied in the music school. We started at age five. Uh, mm -hmm. So, uh, um, I mean, by, uh, by 12th grade, uh, uh, we were easily, better at ear training and harmony than college graduates in the US who mm -hmm. really only studied for four years. I, I quite admire what they managed to do in four years. Mm -hmm. And I see people from not being able to, to define what a triad is to writing quite good uh, you know, uh, sam sam style, style pieces, style exercises like Mozart or Bach, quite impressive. Right. It, this shows a lot of uh, will and a lot, yeah. a lot of talent and a lot of uh, desire. That's, yeah. uh, I find this quite impressive. Uh, yeah, now, specifically uh, for composition. I mean, it's yeah. so important. That stuff is so right. I, I realized your question was very focused on composition. Mm -hmm. um, I do think like having some, ex to some degree of, of ignorance, call it, or like, you know, like just naivete or, Mm -hmm. Maybe just like not necessarily knowing 100% what you're doing is, is, is really magical. And actually, you, you know, once you, once you overcome it and you know too much, it, it creates a lot of uh, problems. So I think being able to, to stay, you know, to, I don't know. I, I, I do think like for me, I, I didn't study composition growing up. Like I answered the question, mostly talking about music education. Mm -hmm. I, I learned composition when I was 18, 19. Mm -hmm. With you actually really? <laughs> <And> <laughs> yes well I'm, I'm really lucky to have students like you actually uh, to be honest now uh, you do you teach a composition to the school kids that you teach do you manage to incorporate it a little bit or improvisation yeah. how does it work now you teach your permanent music teacher in a charter school I mean you the entire music education of, of the generation in the school is in your hands. That's a pretty big responsibility. <laughs> uh, do you include any improvisation uh, instruments, uh, composition? So, yeah, I mean, I was, I'm the first music school, uh, uh, the first music teacher at the school. Okay. So before that, the school didn't have a music program. And so I, I've, you know, the, my responsibility was pretty huge in terms of just like starting the curriculum. There was nothing to rely on from before. But um, 
I think it's a part, definitely a big part of how I do things. We improvise like on a very regular basis, but I don't necessarily call it that. You know, yeah, I think course. for young young students, they they don't they don't know like, um, oh, you know, now now we're gonna not gonna read. We're just gonna be free. Cause I mean, they don't know. They just are free. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. um, and so we 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 do it with uh, certain instruments, like percussion instruments, especially in the beginning. We you know we had a very low budget, so we got lucky and got our hands on some donations of percussion instruments. Nice. And then, so I would use them very, you know, in the classrooms, djembes and certain instruments like that. Um, but also with our voices. As far as writing, the, the main compositional component would be more like songwriting. So since the beginning, and it actually came about kind of by, by accident. It was my, maybe my second week on the job. And... I was, you know, I had, I had a plan, but you know, the plans, they, they only yeah. help you so much. Like at some point you realize like, okay, I had a plan and I have no idea what's going to happen in the next 20 minutes. And I, it was one of those days where I went through everything I thought I was supposed to do. I was with kindergartners and, Aww. and we were sitting and the, 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 the room works like they have this table that's in a U shape okay. and they sit on the outside of the U and I sit on the inside and I put the keyboard there, like a, okay. a 88 key okay. keyboard. And so I sit and I play and they just like watch me and basically we sing songs. And, and we got to a point where I was like, okay, I have no idea what I'm going to do now. So then I said to them, let's just write a song together. Oh, this and, is lovely. Yeah. And so they were like, okay. So and in my mind, I, if you ask me like, what's, what are the chances you think this is going to work? I said, well, it's going to be fun. Let's, but I didn't expect it to go anywhere. Okay. Uh, but it went somewhere so well that now, like, for example, we've written many, many songs like that. Okay. And not only that, but everybody in the school knows the songs. Oh. So that day we wrote a song and I was like, okay, what should it be about? And I still remember the child who said, who said to me, it should be about a dog. Okay. And I said, what's this dog's name? And they said, um, and some other kid said, Sparky. Okay. And I say, okay, so... I played, I would play th different things on the piano and I say, okay, pick one or tell me wh which one do you like? Or they would give me like, no, I think it should be a little more like a little livelier. And I would try changing things and they would tell me which one they wanted. And then finally what we did was we settled on certain chords and then we started writing the song. And the song is like a whole song. We're making a video about it. I can share it with you at some point. Oh yes, please. Yeah. So you're, it's basically you're also talking, teaching them to talk about music and they don't even realize it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, music also s helps them, especially at that young age, to learn this secondary knowledge about, you know, other things, for, for example, geography, culture, but also their feelings. They can talk about their feelings in, when we learn certain songs that are about, say, there's a song called A Castle on the Cloud. And it's about a young girl who, who is an orphan. It's from the... the I forget what it's called, the, the play, The Miserable, or not The Miserable, no, Hunchback of Notre Dame. Okay. I think. Or something like that. One of those like French plays that got turned into a musical. And there is a castle on a... It's about a young girl who has a really terrible life and she's an orphan. And okay. so anyway, it echoes a lot of... I mean, the, the, the students I work with um, come from sometimes pretty broken homes and they have, you know, pretty traumatic lives. And some of them are able to access this trauma and these like difficult feelings that they have to live through despite their being so young 
um, by talking about them at the third person. Mm -hmm. So when they're when they're talking about these songs and what, how do you think this girl feels, they're not necessarily talking about themselves, even though they may relate to her, but it makes it easier for them to talk about how they feel. Mm -hmm. So in that way, music plays this big role in allowing them to process things and, and you know, uh, to overcome them. So how old are your oldest students? So I teach K to five right now. So my oldest kids are, I think, <laughs> you know what, the American grade system still doesn't make any sense to me. But adding the ages, I think it's like, what, 11? Okay. Yeah, I, you know, I can't tell you the ages. <laughs> and the school goes up to which grade? Eight. So it's a yeah, it's an elementary school and middle school, um, and I teach till five next year. I'm going to be teaching till six, five to six, a K to six. So it's regularly growing. In the beginning, it was it was until fourth grade mm -hmm. for the first couple of years, and so. But now they like you, they love you, so <laughs> it's growing. Yeah, it it is growing. Yeah. Now you you've spoken a lot about how you teach, what you teach. Now, have you ever thought about defining your most important components of the pedagogical philosophy or not necessarily? You don't think of it this way. I'm, I, I spend a lot of time, um, you know, questioning what I do and why I do it. And the last few years have been really important for me, um, like on a personal level, you know, I'm sure, you know, like you relate to the fact mm -hmm. that like as a teacher, you learn more than you teach mm -hmm. and fig you figure out a lot about yourself when you work with, with students. And I think, you know, I definitely spend a lot of time, you know, thinking about my, my philosophy, my pedagogical approach, and then especially also my, my, um, you know, the issues like identity and, um, so the students I work with are predominant. I mean, actually, like they're all either um, Latino or or African Americans or Black in general, mm -hmm. um, Caribbean, and and so it's a it's a it's a school that that is you know very neighborhood um, based. Mm -hmm. Some of the teachers who, who teach there were students there. Um, it's a it's a twenty twenty one year old charter school, one of the first charter schools of New York City, and you know, it's, it's amazing to have like some of your colleagues that used to be at the school as children, you know, mm -hmm. um, there's so, continuity there. Yeah. And it has like, um, you know, and it's a big part of it is discussing issues such as, you know, race and culture. And I mean, things that people talk about a lot, especially in the U S nowadays, but I mean, all over issues like, you know, white supremacy and the systemic oppression of minorities. And I think when it comes to teaching, even something like music, this is a big part of the, of the question. What do you teach? How do you teach it? Um, what do you take for granted? How do you frame things? Like, for example, for me, one of the most important parts of what I teach those kids is I want them to learn it all, but I want them to, I don't want them placing anything on a pedestal. So it's really important for them to learn for example, Western classical music, but it's really important for them not to think about it as like better or more sophisticated than, you know, say, I don't know, Afro-Cuban music or, mm -hmm. you know, other traditions. Like I have some students who are from the African diaspora um, 
and you know who, whose parents immigrated from Senegal and other places. And then it's it's really important to like include all these different approaches to music making, and understand how they're all really rich and and fascinating in their own way. Um, so that's yeah. one thing mm-hmm. yeah. that like I've been you know in my approach that I think is, is super important, and one that I wasn't aware of growing up. Like I struggled with it a lot, not because I was aware of it, but I had you know I I made really weird decisions and I kind of overemphasized parts of myself you know what i was telling you in the beginning mm-hmm. like in lebanon how we have this this rift because lebanon is kind of this you know east west sort of meeting zone we have we have an amalgam approach you know to everything and so because of that i think some of us choose to overemphasize ourselves as western or arab and and i think it's like that there's this is a false dichotomy you know Mm-hmm. we're 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 complex we're hetero, heterogeneous people and but we're we have a certain way a certain tradition that is that is really rich and really important and that we we denigrate you know we were taught to think of it as inferior and i didn't realize any of that until you know much later i'm saying i'm talking about like the last few years of my life you know and and i think now that i teach i think it's really important for me to make these these students feel empowered in their heritage um you know what i mean um then there's also other things like for example i like to teach them like what you were mentioning improvisation spontaneity creativity um i also emphasize a lot um technical training so since they were in kindergarten i always i make them learn you know intervals and chords and so you have like you know little little kids like tiny tiny babies who are able to tell you like major seconds and minor seconds and minor thirds, but they don't call them that. I mean, we, we call them big two, small two, okay. uh, big three, small three, you know, four or five. They can tell all these intervals apart from each other. Um, wow. Yeah. But you, you play, you make it into a game. And so that's the last thing. My pedagogy is all games. Mm-hmm. So we, we have, um, when they're little, for example, we remember that like U shaped table I was telling you about. Yes. Um, I have these cubes and I, I place the cubes in the middle with me on the keyboard, right? I, I laid them all out. And, um, and so what I do is I'll, I'll, in the first half of the game, I'll hand out the cubes based on people's answers, right? So if you, if you answer correctly, you get a cube. If you participate a lot, you get cubes. Okay. If, but if you, for example, start, you know, flailing around or you, you call out and you, you misinterrupt somebody else, or, you know, those kinds of things, then you lose your cubes. Ooh. Yeah. And when you have the cubes, you you can use them to build, make these little shapes, okay. right? You can build. So um, they're, they're like train stations. They call them stations. So they make really creative shapes with those little cubes. Okay. Um, and then we connect the cubes with each other with these other little parts that are in two sizes, um, like circles and triangles. The triangles are shorts and the circles are longs okay. and basically they, they practice reading them to travel around between the stations the okay. longs it's like a quarter note and the shorts are eighth notes okay. so long short short longs, and they can do like really crazy compound rhythms right because okay. they're not thinking about it into a bar and so then they have to travel between their stations okay and then the second half of the class after we've played this i mean you know obviously the more cubes you have the more interesting your station's going to look of course and then at the end i start i start getting all the cubes back 
and I take them back one at a time. Mm -hmm. And I build this huge tower where I pile all the cubes up on top of each other. And that's when we start performing more. We're singing and singing and singing. Okay. And like, as the more we sing, the taller the tower gets. Okay. And then everybody has to sit still, right? And you know, young children don't like to sit still, but of course. they have to sit still. Otherwise the, the tower is going to fall. And if the tower falls, we all lose, yeah. right? And if if the tower stands until the end, then we all win. And we're singing these really intense rhythmic songs, and everybody's really into it. But they're they're learning to like sit still when doing it. Of course. So games are really important. I just yeah. told you like a game we play with kindergartners, but there are other games we play with all the kids, and it makes all this you know really sometimes dry and technical knowledge really fun. And they just they not you know they just absorb it and they get really into it. So now I have, you know, in the beginning, I used to have my fourth, fourth graders. They didn't really want to do any of it because mm -hmm. they had just met me mm -hmm. you know, my first year. Now I've got sixth graders who are, you know, super excited to, go, to come to music club and, you know, to, to do dictations or to sing songs. And, you do know, they, you, uh, will you expand to all eighth grades? You know, to a, to a certain degree, it depends. Right now I see every kid every day. Okay. So they see me five days a week, which is okay. a lot. Yeah, good job. If we expand, then I'm gonna then something's gotta give somewhere because yeah. there's only so many hours in the day. So we'll sacrifice then how many times I see every child to seeing all the children. I'm not sure. That's the administration's they're gonna have to decide. Um to I mean to be honest, you know, like I, I love my fifth graders now and next year I'm really excited to go with them to sixth graders. Mm-hmm when they are two sixth grade and then i'm sure the next year I, i'm gonna want to follow them more you know of course <laughs> so well, look, uh, you, it sounds like you are really starting a, a very very solid music program at the school uh, and i really hope you have other music teachers joining you right now my wife she's mm -hmm. a violinist and she volunteers at the school because we don't have a budget like it's okay. really low budget so um we got donations and we we have like a collection of 14 violins right now and uh oh this and, is wonderful yeah so they take lessons and even in the pandemic i mean you've, we've been online for the pandemic and you know we continued getting weekly lessons on zoom um this saturday and in, in three days we're going to meet did in the some park. students thrive in the virtual environment yeah yeah for sure um i mean we lot it's it's another one of those where you win some you lose some okay um you know, we, we lost the ability to all perform together, which is such an exciting um, visceral thing of, of here, feeling the vibrations of like a full room of everybody mm -hmm. singing together. But um, not only did, you know, people can practice more on mute, whereas in class, you know, we have to take turns. It can be really chaotic on on Zoom. Everybody gets to practice at the same time and then they'll mute themselves and play for me or mm -hmm. share one at a time while the others are free to continue working. So that's great. But also there's a lot of kids who are kind of quiet, you know, music, music and art in general, often like, you know, something that certain types of personalities are really drawn to. And often those personalities are, you know, kind of quiet, shy, uh, soft spoken kids who when you have a room full, you know, with 15 or, or more children, sometimes these kids, they don't, they don't speak through, right? Yes. Uh, they don't like they don't come across. And this year, thanks to to the virtual environment and also the chat function, which has been incredible, because some of those students 
started developing their confidence by chatting with me. Okay. And I'm pretty good at multitasking. So I, I you know, I, I can teach and chat and like manage the breakout rooms. I, I got really good at like multitasking. But so just messaging them back and like giving them little little feedback has built their confidence to a point that now you have some students who, you know, who are leaders um, who last year were just extremely, um, you know, subdued and you know, soft-spoken. They, they, mm-hmm. they just sat in the back and like, I mean, you could tell like they, they you know, they like, they, they like being there, but it, it's logistically difficult to mm-hmm. really develop the one-on-one. And I think the virtual environment does allow you more one-on-one despite like the group, you know? Yes. So that's one way that we've really thrived. We've also made a lot of videos. So recently we made one, it's uh, Ella Fitzgerald's song, A Tisket, A Tasket. Okay. And then we made a version with like our kids. Mm. Um, we have like an after-school program called The Music Club twice okay. a week. Um, it's like two hours on Wednesday and two hours on Saturday. And it's for kids who want to, who want to perform more and do, you know, they learn to play the piano. Um, they learn to really write like on the, on, in two clefs and, you know, uh, in ways that are more like even more advanced than what we do in, during the day. Okay. And we make, we make performance videos. We make, you know, all kinds of things and they're really proud of themselves. Like it, it really builds their confidence. Um, Definitely. So, music, music does this for you. Yeah. And so the virtual, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't all a bad story. It wasn't like, a, oh, then we went virtual. I can't wait to go back because we're not doing anything. Okay. That's not true. We, we've had a, a really great year. It also takes imagination like yours to make it work. Mm. Though. Yeah, I, I would definitely say not everybody is willing to, uh, um, you know, think outside the box. I think in my case, before I, I started teaching at a college, in a school, I was teaching online um to a lot of students who were like in a different city than me so okay. i got to i got to experiment um, okay teaching, you know even like composition lessons i was teaching i was tutoring doctoral students in theory for their comprehensives i was teaching you know a couple of kids who wanted to get into uh undergraduate in composition so i got to experiment with teaching online and so you know i had time to to absorb it I think so. And how thing, about your own music? How did COVID uh, affect it? So, I mean, it depends. For like, I I recently wrote a piece for an ensemble, and I it was called an e commission. Okay. Um, and I I definitely tried to embrace the the limitations instead of just treating them as you know a hindrance. Um, I tried to make it part of the piece. So um, it's a long story, I can tell you, but it, it takes, I think I, I should talk a little bit about <laughs> what I did before to, for it to make sense. Okay. Um, but I, I like to write improvised pieces, basically. And um, I, I didn't always do that. When, when I met you and when I started out, I, I was writing, you know, music, music where... I specified almost all aspects of the music. That's not to say that there was no room for performers, right? Obviously, interpretation is always part of the equation. But I was writing, you know, fully specified music, let's say, on a score. Um, gradually, I started being more and more interested in writing music that leaves more open or leaves more up to the performer. Um, why was I doing that? I don't know. 
I don't know what drew me to it at first, but I was really interested in what, how a piece could change from performance to performance um, without you necessarily changing the piece. So for example, you write a piece and the form or the shape of the piece is still there, but everything about it can change from performance to performance. Is that, is that possible? Mm-hmm. Is it possible to retain somehow the identity of the piece, but, but without necessarily retaining everything about its surface? Um, so I started playing around with that idea. And, and that's something I've been working with for like the last, you know, I would say six years, seven years. But when, when this happens, it, when this, you know, COVID happened and I was, I was writing a piece for an ensemble that's uh, in North Carolina and all of them were scattered, right? They, they weren't performing in the same room. So the piece was meant to be performed by musicians who were going to coordinate with each other, you know, via Zoom or, or yeah. via, you know, like, okay, here's the, the violin track. Now the cellist is going to record themselves you know, listening to the violin track rather than like both of them playing together. Mm-hmm. And so I was interested in, in thinking like, how can I embrace that? And how can I still use the idea of, you know, improvisation and um, inviting the performers into the creative process? So, you know, it, it's been an interesting, um, an interesting experiment. You're, yeah. you're one of uh, at least three people. Uh, who's been doing this, whom I, who I know, a mm. uh, colleague of mine, uh, uh, Matthew Lane, who actually was also a guest on Topical Reflections on Music, mm-hmm. uh, he wrote a choir piece for a Zoom performance that incorporated the delay, you know, the, the Zoom delay. Again, it was a, a, an aleatoric piece. Wow. So uh, uh, artists, musicians, uh, we always find a way to express yeah. our art in some way. And as we know, uh, real freedom also comes from working within the limitations. Mm-hmm. Um, um, now, uh, talking about the ensemble, you are a founder of an ensemble, the Amalgam Ensemble, and uh, with which you've done a lot of uh, improvisatory pieces. Um, how did the, your idea for the ensemble come about and what were the most unexpected practical difficulties that you encountered when you were trying to get it off the ground? So, so the answer was called Amalgama. And um, we started it, I think, in 2017. I want to say the summer of 2017. Although it had been kind of, we've been playing around with it for a few months before. Um, so it for me, it was it was very much tied into issues or like concerns I was having when writing that kind of music. So I was, I was, I was writing pieces where I was increasingly asking performers to supply material performers like within a piece. So for example, imagine string quartet and all of a sudden, you know, I'll ask the violist to supply three measures. Okay. Um, and I, I'll leave them empty, you know, and the, the other players are playing something that's already written. And so I say, okay, now um, for this part, you, you, I mean, you don't have to improvise it in the sense that you just play it in the moment. It, you can compose it, you know, you can write it in if you prefer to, you mm-hmm. know, play something that you've thought of and you want to play it. You know, some people don't feel it comfortable improvising on the spot. 
so that's why I leave the score empty. And they're they're free to stay. I mean, they're actually encouraged, of course, to look at what the others are playing and make an informed decision, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but so I, I would I started out doing this, and then gradually I was like interested in in doing this more and more, where it wasn't just three bars, but it'd be like you know sometimes entire sections where musicians are supposed to transition to a certain moment, and they know what that moment is. So again, when I say improvised, a lot of people think of it as sight read you know that improvisation is meant to be spontaneous in the moment like you don't think about it it's free you just go but i mean i think that's an extreme you know i never shared that like i I grew up as a jazz player and with arabic music you know there's a lot of improvised elements that are part of the piece Mm -hmm. and and that but that doesn't mean that you're supposed to just make it up completely free anything goes there are certain expectations certain things that you're supposed to choose now the more stylistically defined a um, you know, a certain piece of music is, the easier it is to do that, right? Like when you're playing jazz, there are lots of uh, inherited vocabulary and gestures and, you know, things that people do that are very clear, you know, that they can study from each other. The, the question was in the new music s- uh, setting, how can you do the same? How can you, um, how can you have decisions be discussed? And, you know, for example, you're looking at this passage you're like okay we're going to be arriving at this part right this this these five bars that are already written out so how are we going to get there what's what are we going to prepare about it right you're forced as a performer to ask yourself very like straightforward questions what you know how are you going to transition to this what about this passage that you're going towards are you going to um highlight or are you going to prepare or are you going to move towards and i think the reason I was I was I was feeling very frustrated and I wanted this to happen is because often I felt like performers would play my music without ever thinking about those things. And I mean like fully notated music, right? Where you give it all to them and they're very concerned with playing everything on time at the dynamics and the notes that you gave them, but they're not thinking about, you know, the texture or the 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 harmonic tension or what is the driving force of the piece of music in that point in the particular time, right? Like what is the parameter that really is the defining parameter in this piece of music. So like harmony or uh, rhythm or, you know what I mean? Like every every music, every piece, every sometimes moments in a piece has that parameter that is more important than others. And sometimes I feel, I felt like a lot of the performers I was playing with just weren't thinking about those things. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to write something that would kind of make them think about it, right? So if you have to transition to this passage, you have to look at that passage in advance and think okay and and it's especially i mean when it when it would be done by more than one performer right because we have a lot of like really amazing performers out there who play by themselves or with another person or even three people but what would it be like if there were seven people who had to play that piece you know then they had to sit down and discuss and debate what they think should happen right and how would they like to um, shape this section. So yeah. I was really interested in like inviting performers to have these discussions. Um, so that's that's the music I was writing at the time. Mm-hmm. And one thing I, I was having a conversation with my my teacher at the time when I was doing my doctorate at Northwestern University, and he was he was mentioning to me that like something that I still I still don't totally know how I feel about. But the idea was that not all performers or most performers, the way he put it was most performers 
don't like improvising and or aren't good at it. So if you want to write music like that, you need to write it for performers who not only like to do it, but do it together all the time. So, so I understood that as in, you know, people who will develop that, that, you know, relationship with each other. And so essentially, what inspired the amalgam of? yeah, so that's how I, I was like, okay, well, maybe then I just have to make my own ensemble um, where we can, we can, you know, develop that rapport with each other over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And around the time I had just moved to New York. Um, so then I, I started meeting all these really great performers from Manhattan School of Music, where my now wife um, was studying. And she was, she's a violinist and she was studying in there it's called cpp it's a contemporary performance program uh, something like that i think cpp that's what it stands for so you know so obviously she was hanging out with all these really cool performers and i was you know uh how do you call it like i was uh, uh you know when like you're, you're you don't really go to the school but you're basically you basically go to the school just okay honorarily you know because i am through her basically you know yeah. so so we started like having these, you know, and then I had this accidental situation where someone needed me to conduct a piece. So I started doing it, which is something I hadn't done since I left Montreal, because in the US, I'm not allowed to work. So as soon as I moved to the US, I, I stopped conducting because most gigs required you to have like a work permit. Um, and so I kind of took a break of a few years from conducting. And suddenly, we just started doing it as, as an ensemble. And it's like, okay, I, I need to, I need to, um, do this for myself like as a composer this is where my music is going and then I, st I i was meeting these people and so i pitched the idea to them and um and gradually i mean i mean i'm not the founder i'm a co-founder with lena lena mm -hmm. my, my wife she was also a very like a very big part of you know getting the ensemble off off the ground um but the basic idea was how do we explore what lies in between the two extremes of fully composed so like fully notated music or free improvisations um and so at the time i mean a lot of people that i knew were were doing free improvisations including as large groups but i think large like free improvisation meant that free right mm -hmm. you just go and you have no preconceptions if you have some, it's they're very, very little. But the idea is to try and just see what happens, right? And there were a lot of players that I was meeting who were pretty good at that. And a lot of players I was meeting who were pretty good at playing Fernie Howe and, you know, the kind of music where basically, you know, you're oversaturated with information. And yes. um, including like very complex things where, you know, say a pianist has to play with like both feet and then with all their hands, I know you're an organist, so that doesn't, that doesn't phase you, but you know, it's hard to play with both your feet. And like, um, they would have to like, you know, play a different pedal and a different instrument with their foot. And while also moving a, a power ball or whatever that's called inside the piano and reading and saying hissing sounds written in IPA. I mean, performers would do like crazy stuff and they had absolutely no problem doing it, right? Yeah. But then the minute you ask them, hey, would you want to improvise in F minor for five bars in this part of my piece, then suddenly you got a, you got a crisis on your hand, right? <laughs> and that happened to me, like that exact thing happened to me. Um, so, you know, I was like, well, what if we found, I mean, my music, I really wanted to find something that was in the middle, something 
where you had a lot of information that was given to you. And I don't mean like a process or, you know, like some of the process pieces or aleatoric pieces where you have some information that's given to you, but it's only meant to be there as like a sort of a generator of content. But after that, like everything is really free. No, like what if, what about if there was really just about half of the information that was there, you couldn't, you couldn't negotiate it, mm -hmm. you know, something like, for example, if I wrote out all the rhythms and I gave you the contours, and dynamics but then what exactly is in there can be up to you right so i mean that, that that kind of thing and there are of course lots of ways to do this but so the idea was to find an ensemble where we would do both extremes and then like dialectically you could say try to find the synthesis and find ways to incorporate both so we would play things like we played pierre lunaire we played like um Voirex by Philippe Leroux. Mm -hmm. We, you know, um, we did like, you know, a lot of commissions with performers, composers who wrote us like fully notated pieces. And then every concert we would also do a free improvisation, often inviting the, the composers we, whose music we play, if they're around to join us. Mm -hmm. And then we would find, a, uh, we would make a piece that would be, often I would write that piece where it's like essentially somewhere in the middle, you know, it, some of it is supplied and some of it is not. And often it would be inspired by the composer's pieces that we're playing. Now, does, does your approach, how does your approach to form differ depending on the amount of improvisation in the piece? Or it doesn't? So that's a really interesting and complicated question, right? Good. Well, I'm happy that I'm complicated. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's, that's, that's one of the biggest... Uh, um, hurdles or questions you have to answer when you write a piece like that is you know what are you shaping and what are you giving and then is what you're giving them um you know like for example if i'm giving you a piece and it's designed out of words taken out of a newspaper and you just have to read the word and like let it trigger something and then just play that something so those words probably don't really matter I mean, somebody could say, no, they really matter. It's, you know, philosophically, it's the ethos of the piece. I don't know. What happens, what ends up happening formally in the piece is in a way aleatoric. And what you supply, what you gave them was just an excuse for mm -hmm. them to, to feel kind of uninhibited by other things and just to mm -hmm. play, you know. So I wasn't interested in doing that. I wanted to really like write like what you would describe as, as like a form or um, I don't know but the word form but i wanted to write music that they couldn't ignore i mean if they wanted to ignore it then they just would be ignoring the piece it would be i would consider that to be like the the performance is is like the performance of piece failed that's what i would say to myself okay i know it's harsh but like that's what i would in my in myself inside me i would say okay that didn't work i want you know i would want to be I, it's like you're playing a jazz piece and you just want to ignore the harmony you know like I wanted to come up with the harmony of a piece of, of this piece, you know, I mean? like the equivalent of what harmony is to jazz, you know, standard jazz. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. So like when you're improvising, you, you have to follow the harmonic structure. Yes. You can't just ignore it. And then you can do something against it or for it or, but you have to take it into consideration. So what I wanted to supply was essentially the equivalent of harmony to jazz All in right. a piece like that. Now, is that what makes the form? So would you say if you're playing a jazz standard and you take a big solo in the middle and then 
is the harmony what drives the form of the piece or is it um the structure right? uh, well harmony is structure and structure drives the form of the piece right so i mean i remember us talking a lot when i was your student about the idea of a form and like whether it should or shouldn't be uh, a bottle yeah. that you just fill you know you just fill the it importance with cup i believe is the metaphor yeah we, exactly. the allegory we used yeah i mean so so like is form something you can really preconceive um maybe but like personally i don't i think i try to think of other things that like are interacting things that are generators of tension you could call it so for example if you have a piece where the, you know in mozart okay <laughs> you're playing tonal music what drives what drives the form you know on the foreground the middle ground and the background on the foreground is going to be you know the the melodic fragments and the the, the little things that are happening like inst instant to instant you know then you have like the further deeper you go into the structure is are things like the key and the tonal centers and their motion you know middle ground you would have like the harmony right the 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 formal the harmonic rhythm and mm -hmm. the tension that you generate as you module as you work your way up to a big five that will resolve right so those are those are the real like tension builders that eventually result release and that makes us feel like the piece ended I'm not saying all music has to go that way, but that's often how music works, right? So yeah. if you're building a piece that's minimalist and it's all about a certain pulse, like and you you're not really gonna change that, you're gonna keep that, right? So then you're gonna have to have a different way than rhythm to generate tension. It could be yes. with dynamics, could be with register, it could be with harmony, but something is gonna be your your playground where you're gonna be like, okay, I'm gonna play around with that thing. And it's really important for the performer to be aware of what that thing is when making important decisions about how to interpret your piece, right? And knowing that that thing is going to be different from piece to piece or from style to style. So when I was making these, these pieces, for me, it was like, what have I got to work with? So there's a piece I wrote called Jerk. Um, okay. And it's, um, it's pretty short. It's like four, five minutes. And... It's fully notated in terms of rhythm, dynamics, contour. And then there's like some more abstract things. Like for example, you know how in flutes notation, you have circles that are either filled, empty or half filled. Yes. And they usually mean like whether a sound is full sound or air or somewhere in the middle. I was using that notation over all the parts, um, but I kept it kind of vague. To me, it was more like the the depth of the sound. It didn't mm -hmm. have to be a timbre. I asked the performers to decide with each other what how they were going to interpret that 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 circle. It could be like harmonic tension. It could be the the timbre of the sound, like how fully pitch is it, or how airy is it, or how maybe noisy is it. It could be in the gestures that they were going to play. You know how defined or how fleeting were they? I mean, anybody could decide what they wanted, but there were some things that were notated and it was conducted right it's for amalgama i was conducting so mm -hmm. it allowed us to play like pretty complex pieces in terms of you know coordination every you know not everybody can play anytime there's you know very carefully built in like weaving and interweaving of 
different instruments playing, um, attacks that came together. So what I had to play with was aside for the rhythm was also the the alignment, right? Things coming together or things coming apart. Um, and so I built a large um, structure or a form or I don't know what words mean anymore, but a big network, a, a web, right? That they had to work with. And and so we we obviously when we spent a lot of time working through it from performance to performance, the piece ends up sounding alike to say 70%. Yeah. 70% alike from performance to performance. Yeah. And those 30%, that was the, the real magic for me. That was like why I said, wow, I really like that we did that because those 30% were so different. You know, I know it sounds like not a lot, but it is a lot. Oh, it is a lot. Considering but like- it, But it is, it is, but it shows that the piece has an indelible essence because uh, the overwhelming percentage will be the same from piece to piece right from performance but to performance as as long as the performance the performances are close to each other because if you let a year go and then you come back then we have to re-answer all these questions right assuming we don't all have like an uh, amazing memory where we just absolutely remember what we wanted to do well how did it work with ensembles where you didn't conduct has it happened so, so uh, open call anybody who wants to play it <laughs> come right. you know but so far yeah i haven't heard somebody else play it but we played it a few a few times over these like few weeks mm -hmm. and and it matured you know it definitely matured but i'm pretty sure that if you know we were to go back to it now it would sound pretty different because um even like small accidental decisions in the beginning where somebody decides to do one thing different that will like you know trigger like you know, snowball into the whole piece sounding different all of a sudden. So uh, did you did you manage to get a lot of royalties from these performances or the US is about uh, as uh, sad of a case as Canada? So I'm I have such low expectations that I don't even bother. Oh, this is so depressing. Yeah, but also, I mean, I don't know, I guess as a foreigner until very recently without permanent status i i just always assumed that i was you know i just i just assumed that i'm not entitled to any of it oh, even when yeah, i was in canada even when i was in canada i remember i i got like this one time i got the, the, you know a piece recorded on an album and everybody was getting you know a certain amount of royalties or i forget like people everybody got like five six hundred dollars not from the you know the, the 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 ensemble had arranged for this to happen okay and when i was contacting socan to get mine they were like well you're not you're not a resident this is for residents well so, actually you do have a right to it but they send it to your country they send it to lebanon oh yeah so it's like sending something to a non-existent address <laughs> there's nobody there yeah well it, it goes uh, before I became Canadian, everything was sent to Bulgaria, where it was a bottomless pit. But wow, five, six hundred dollars, man, that's more than I've ever earned in royalties. My, my, uh, my, oh, my OSMPs didn't bring me a single penny. Uh, and at the time, I was too young to fight. The Bulgarian orchestra brought me enough for pizza and a soda. Uh, so yeah, you you definitely haven't lost much. No. Now, um. <laughs> We're approaching the end of our uh, uh, podcast uh, conversation, and I tend to end each encounter with about the same question. Mm -hmm. uh, the podcast has a 
particular focus on the subject of ethics, what would you consider a non-negotiable red line of professional ethics? And have you experienced any conflict between personal morals and professional ethics? Now, uh, I think especially cases of lawyers who know their client is guilty, they like they morally are repo uh, repulsed, but ethically they have an obligation as lawyers to defend. Now, I, I wonder whether this has happened to you in your work in life as a musician. And if you feel comfortable, uh, tell us what uh, what type of conflict it was and how did you resolve it without mentioning any names, of course. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I wonder what like. I know it's the kind of thing where you 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 immediately project something a meaning onto the word, and you think you know what it means. But professional ethics versus you know um, personal morals. Personally, I you know even though I know what you mean by professional ethics. I still sometimes I feel like I don't totally know. Okay. How are the two different? Well, ethics is uh, personal morals is your belief of good and bad mm -hmm. professional ethics is right and wrong in a particular context so it doesn't have to do necessarily with your your job or well professional ethics is professional because it's the job oh that's okay. why the question is centered around the job uh, uh, now of course uh, now i i have i have faced i i have faced certain conflicts myself you know uh, like, uh, do I do I play like do I play a gig to help a friend? Mm -hmm. But this like my moral said yes, you should because you're a good friend and you love them, etc. But my professional ethics say no because if you play for free, it brings down the livelihood of everybody. Right. This is a, a very big inherent conflict for me, and this is actually what sparked my interest in the topic and me asking this question in some form or another to everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a big thing to think about. I think when it comes to what you just mentioned, mm -hmm. um, it's something that I, I wouldn't say struggle with, but it's like something I, I ponder with a lot. The idea of getting paid to be a musician Mm -hmm. and what that does to my agency and my ability to perform, but also to the culture that we live in. I, I strongly believe in community musical um, activities. Um, and, you know, even though I was trained and like you, you know, we, mm -hmm. we went to school for many, many, many years and became quote unquote professional musicians. I've, you know, I, I, I feel really strongly about music, just divorcing music from this money-centered, um, you know, equation. And not, not just because, I mean, I think music should be free or because I don't think music is a job, but because I feel like the, 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 the system that we live in, and, you know, specifically, I mean, like, you know, the capitalist um, system that we live in and the world that we live in right now is just so rotten <laughs> yes. you know and it's just so complex it's almost like beyond redemption and so trying to adjust music 
so that it fits that equation, you know, for example, something like professional ethics where, well, professionally, how would I behave and where are my ethics? I feel like the whole thing is just so out of whack that trying to adjust my ethics to it will ensure that the thing that I'm doing, which is music and being a musician, is going to rot along with it. Okay, so, so do you think that music is amoral? Now, just to clarify, I don't mean immoral. I mean yeah, amoral. Absolutely and not. I'm, I'm inclined to believe it is. Yeah, I mean, I think music is, is to me, music is, is a deeply political and, you know, cultural phenomenon that that that's that goes way beyond um you know just like neutrality and and just aesthetic pleasure you know okay and, and that is one way that i i mean one of what i was saying earlier about my pedagogic pedagogical philosophy and what mm-hmm. how i teach my kids i i think music has such a huge role to play in society um and the, it, i mean there are definitely tons of examples of what i would call like extremely immoral uses of music, you know, it serves such a, you know, even colonial role. It, it can be extremely harmful. Music can be, you know, for example, in the Middle East, mm-hmm. the way music is approached is no different than the way land is approached, the way people's bodies are approached. You know, music is this powerful tool that people can use and appropriate and, and disfigure the same way they can do that with a human human being and their body and mm-hmm. you know their lives. So I don't I don't know. I wouldn't call it amoral. But what I mean is more like I find like the system, the economic system and like the inequalities and the injustices and racist um, systemic oppressions that we live in. And I mean like white supremacy, you know, like calling it for what it is. Is it's such a it's 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 such a a cancer that Sometimes I feel like we we struggle with this as people. Like you can you can look at you can watch the 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 house burning and you could just like be obsessed with sitting here and watching it burn to the point that you might burn with it. Or you could just make a conscious choice that you know what? It's gonna it's gonna crush me, but I'm gonna walk away right now. Yeah. Because I don't want my life to be about that fire. You know, and I mean, as a Lebanese person, I, I I struggle with this every day, not only because, you know, having to leave your country, but I mean, what's been going on over there the last two years, every day is, is it's sinking, you know, and we're having to look away and try to continue making a life away while knowing that you're, you're, you're you know, you know, professional ethics, you're failing. <laughs> you know what I mean? If that was that an analogy. So... So when I say that, like, to me, I feel like, I mean, I teach for free all the time. You know, I have tons of kids that I teach for free. Now, keep in mind, for me, these kids, these kids are, they're all poor, right? The kids I work with are all, like, you know, in that um, socioeconomic status. And that's one of the reasons why I love my job is, is I feel like I'm fighting back. I'm, you know, I'm, am I getting paid enough? No, right? But do I care? I mean, no, I lived most of my life. I'm 36 now. I got this job like two, three years, three years ago now. So before that, so 15 years of my adult life, I lived below the poverty line. I was making less than $20,000 a year. And most of it was, you know, <clears throat> under the table. <laughs> you know? uh, I wasn't allowed to work, you know, yeah. and in Canada I was, but it was, it was much more complicated. 
And so, so I, you know, suddenly I'm making more and I feel rich, you know, but when I see how much money some people make around me and what they're using it for and how the education system is made and how the music, for example, like music, what's American music, right? What is American? It's, it's, it's African-American music for me, you know, like mm -hmm. I know some people will disagree, but you take, you take, um, color people out of, um, out of American music, there's nothing left, right? But then there's this thing called American music, and then there's this thing called African American people, right? Yeah. And this distinction. So music can be very immoral in that immoral in that sense, where you can you can rob people of their cultures, of their contributions, and keep them in the dirt. So how do you fight that back? You know what I mean? Like for me, it's like I I put my I put my, my, myself in a position where I can help and I can ally myself um, with people that I, you know, I believe I can form community with. And then I'm probably, you know, harming other musicians in, in the doing because I'm teaching for free. Like what you were saying, I'm teaching for mm -hmm. free. I'm playing for free. I'm, I'm not. Oh, but are you though? Don't you get, you did get, you do get a salary. So I get a salary for the day, but I can't tell you how many students I teach for free, how many oh. hours I, okay, I, I spend, you know, I spend a lot of time biking around to fix my kids' violins, um, mm -hmm. to, you know, I, I go out of pocket to, to buy my students' instruments when we don't have the budget or we can't get a donation. And I think that's my job. Like, that's my role, right? I'm there to nurture those kids. your vocation, dear. That's not your job. No, but that's my... That's, that's your my... vocation as a teacher. Yeah, but then that's where I'm. That's where I go. Like job, what is what is a job? I mean, if I'm going to start getting all, you know, really go into my politics, I'm going to quit it all. You know, because I, it's it's all so broken. I just I don't know. I I I have such idea strong ideals when it comes to labor and our time and our right to be able to exist and and without it all being tied to a dollar sign at the end and whether we earn it or whether we can build our worth with what we do. I mean, if I if I really spend too much time thinking about it, I feel like I just like would sink myself into the ground. So, I, so you I, support I, universal basic income? Of course. Yeah, me too. Okay, glad we agree. On this uh, on this happy note of agreement, <laughs> <laughs> I would like to thank you, dear Michal, for uh, for being with us today. Thank you. In in uh, a very very enlightening interview, you are the. You're the first uh, uh, school teacher I have as guest. Um, and let me say, I believe school teachers are the heroes of our time. <laughs> and the COVID pandemic uh, showed it to everybody. So thank you very much. And uh, good luck with all of your projects. Thank you. And thank you for having me.